engaging in that. And then if you still have your Bible open, open uh, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We have been working through uh, 2 Corinthians, if you recall, and uh, we've got to this place where Paul is uh, preparing to really kind of lay out the differences between him and these false teachers that have invaded the church, and uh, you know, there's this comparison of him not giving money or asking for money and all those things, and we got to the place where Paul is just going to unfold how radically different he is than them, and it's the list of his sufferings, uh, how he was whipped and stoned and beat and shipwrecked and the things he would go through, and it's, you know, we read those things and we, and we'll, Lord willing, we'll get to that, but uh, we want to come to this place and, and understand why. Why is Paul willing to suffer that way? Why is he willing to go through such abuse, right, from those who are calling themselves Christian? Um, you know, it should not surprise us today. We know the church is, is not perfect, uh, but we see in Paul's own day the struggle of false teachers and the falsehood and the things that are happening, and he's dealing with this, and they're treating him just poorly, and yet he's gone through so much. And why has Paul done that? Because he believes the gospel. He believes it is true, and he believes it is the means to which people come to know, right? So Jesus Christ. Um, is God's answer to our sin problem. It is everything. And as we were about to look through that passage in 2 Corinthians, we realized that uh, there is in moments in our own lives where we too are going to be called to suffer, uh, to endure hardship, to go through difficulties, to uh, maybe we'll have moments where, as John says in 1 John 3, 16, uh, Jesus Christ laid down his life. We should lay down our lives for our brothers. There might be a time where the Lord calls us to do that. And we want to be those who understand the gospel and the big picture enough to go, yes, Lord, if that's what you call of me, I will be obedient. And so that's the reality. We see the, the decay in our, in our society, and we know opposition is growing, and we know that there is always been and will always be until the Lord returns a battle raging between the two families, right? The family of Adam and the family of Christ. And so here is where the church stands. It stands with the gospel. And we've come back to um, what Paul has succinctly stated as a confessional statement in 1 Corinthians 15. He's come back and he said, this is... This is what it is. Paul is simply standing here and pointing, right, to some professing believers who are on the verge of, of not really believing, believing possibly in vain. And he's standing there at this crossroads of this church, taking all the beating, taking all of the, the whips and the, and the abuse and the name-calling, and he's continually pointing to Jesus because he believes the gospel. There was a story of a, of a Muslim who became a Christian, and he was asked about uh, this reason, why did you become a Christian? And uh, he simply answered and said, it's like this. If you were on a journey and you came to a fork in the road and there, were, uh, there was a living person there and a dead person there, which person would you ask for directions? Clearly the one that's living, Right. And I think a lot of that is, is true. You know, we... we 
we see a lot of people, unfortunately, in the church, those who, who seem to be of, of rapport, and yet it seems like there is not honest direction. There is many who come to this crossroads, and they're receiving instruction from false teachers who are not pointing to Jesus, but rather they are spiritually dead and ultimately leading away. But Paul has this conviction, and this is where he's standing. With all the abuse and all the suffering, he is pointing and will continue to point to Jesus Christ. And beginning in verse 1, I'll read verse 1 through verse 11, and this is what he says. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach. And so you believed. Let me offer a brief prayer. Father, we again say thank you for the time in which you've given to us. And we simply ask that your spirit would instruct us and teach us according to your word. That we would believe rightly and correctly. And that you would be glorified. Please instruct us and grow us that this would not be simply knowledge obtained, but we would grow in our holiness and grow in our sanctification and grow in our obedience. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we've worked through this passage a little bit, we have seen some, some I just call them gospel facts, right? These are facts. This is what Paul is running with. And we ever find ourselves in a place where we're questioning or doubting, we should just come back and just see how Paul is treating this. How does Paul respond to this situation? How does Paul reason in his mind? How does Paul go about unfolding these truths to a bunch of people who are in danger of moving away from Christ? Well, we saw in the first two verses that the gospel doesn't change. It's an eternal truth. Right? The gospel is the, the, the means in which God has given to us. He has so loved the world this way. He has given Jesus Christ. It still redeems sinners. Somewhere along the line, we, uh, we thought it wasn't enough. And so the church throughout history has added things to it. Uh, back in the 70s, there were some studies, and uh, they concluded that Jesus wasn't enough, and you've got to do something more, and thus the seeker-sensitive movement was born right? We believe that Christ wasn't enough. You've got to do other shows. And Paul says, uh, it's not a show you need, right, brothers and sisters. It is the gospel. You are to receive the gospel, stand in the gospel, and you are saved by the gospel. 
He continues by saying, the gospel is not your truth. You don't have a liberty to take it and tweak it and agree with some of it and disagree with other parts of it. You have no place in which to place yourself above the Bible. We don't get to do that, right? He is the creator. This is his word. He has created it. We are the created, right? We receive his truth, and the gospel is God's truth. It's God's means so we must, right, be exact in how we present it. How does God unfold it? Well, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through Paul in this passage, we can understand it. And we realize, right, that it must be communicated. I mean, Jesus died for what? Our sins. The gospel assumes we have a, a sin problem. Uh, Jesus believed at the beginning of his ministry. What does he call us to do? Repent. He assumes what? You have a sin problem. He's not going to take time to explain that. He's operating from that. And the gospel addresses our need. It communicates the answer we need. And it gives us assurance. All of this in the gospel. And so Paul is standing at this crossroads, going back to my opening metaphor, right? And what is he doing? He is pointing to Jesus. This is what we preach, whether I or someone else. We have preached this. He's preaching it, right? He's speaking it back to a church that's in danger of believing in vain. Have you believed in vain? And why is he doing this, right? Well, the gospel has, the way it is explained here is it's as if Paul is anticipating a response to it. It's not just simply here's some facts, lay them out there like a trivia game. Well, that's interesting. I'll tuck that away next time we play this game. I'll know that. No, the gospel calls us to something. It's not meant simply to just say, I've believed or I prayed a prayer. The gospel is a life-changing element. Paul is illustrating that for us in this text. And so just this, a simple three points I have for you today. Of course, that represents the Trinity, so you know this one's going to be a good one, right? But here is the first point. Uh, the gospel reveals. It reveals. I mean, from the very beginning, go, you can go back to Genesis or go to John, wherever you want to go, it shows God's willingness to redeem. What a patient, loving, amazing God. Verses 5-3, listen to what he says. Paul explaining the gospel, right? Telling us about the gospel. Then he tells us because the church is in, in danger of, of, of believing in vain because they're questioning the uh, the resurrection, right? Some are spiritualizing it. No, it wasn't literal. And some were saying it just flat didn't happen. But Paul comes after giving the gospel and he says, look, look at the willingness of God. Jesus, when he rose out of the tomb, just as the scriptures proclaimed, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. Paul, in essence, is saying you can go talk to them, right? But then he says, uh, but some have fallen asleep. They have gone and, and passed. At verse 7, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So here's the reality of it. We have Jesus who actually died. It was a physical body. He was actually buried, as Paul has been telling us, according to the Scriptures. And on the third day, he rose again. He actually rose. This is what Paul is communicating to us. 
See, I think sometimes in our Christian life, we're going to struggle with some uncertainty, with some doubts, with moments where we don't know why we went through what we just went through. We're going to scratch our heads and we're going to wonder, and we're going to think, did I believe in vain? If you think on the cross, Jesus on the cross has demonstrated right to every, uh, those who believed and those who didn't believe. We see it at, at Calvary, Jesus, those who were standing at the cross, uh, shaking their heads and, and their fists at him and saying, if you really are, show it to me, right? Prove it to me, come down off that cross. But we see in the resurrection, Jesus coming not to those who don't believe, but those who believe. everyone was scattered, right? We, we were unsure. Jesus was dead. What do we do now? Here we have a church that's doubting. I don't know about this resurrection thing. It's hard for me to believe it, so it must not be true. Paul comes and he gives right six moments, and he doesn't even list them all. Scripture grabs hold of other ones, right? There's uh, the women, that's the tomb. We see two men going to Emmaus on the road. We Disciples, right, apart from Thomas. uh, Seven disciples at the lakeside and John. There's the 12 in Jerusalem at the ascension and Acts. There's others here that Paul could have grabbed for, but he grabs these. And he says, to these he actually appeared. Well, why is that? Well, the first one, it's, it's no wonder, right? We have Peter, right, the denier. Is that not what this Corinthian church is doing right now? Denying the resurrection? So Paul grabs hold of Cephas and says, look, he appeared to the one who denies. He appeared to Cephas. What do we know of Peter. If I was to ask you that question, what do you know about Peter? You'd most likely say, well, he's a fisherman. Uh, he did walk on water once. That is true, right? Um, maybe he cut an ear off a guy, right? Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, he did do that. He was rebuked by Jesus. Yeah, that was an awkward moment. And what's the last one that we typically are always going to know about Peter? Right? He denied. He's the denier. In Luke's account, we see that Jesus and him made eye contact. That's how Luke presents it in the courtyard. But Peter also knows something, right, about redemption and forgiveness, doesn't he? He's also the guy that's reinstated. God forgives, God saved him, God redeemed him. The resurrected Lord, Jesus Christ, appears to him. And even that moment, Peter is saying, uh, let's talk about John. Look at him over there. And Jesus is saying, whoa, 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 I'll take about him. We're gonna, me and you are going to have a conversation, right? Even in that moment, he feels the weight of what he's done. There's a sense in Peter, I don't, I don't, right? Let's not talk about him. I'm so embarrassed. What does Jesus do? What was the willingness of God? Are you struggling with denying? Have you had that moment where you felt that in your heart? I'm going to tell you today, God is willing to forgive. He came to Peter. He goes on as Paul unfolds this. Now he next, it's not enough for him to, to list the denier. He goes to the deserters, right? To the 12. 
Uh, go right to the, the moment of, of the new covenant and Jesus is uh, sharing that moment of, of communion with the disciples and he knows uh, one is going to betray him and the rest are going to desert him. Right? They go from there and they go and pray and what are all the disciples doing? I'm kind of tired. Can you not pray with me even one hour? Jesus is taken. There's that moment we see Peter, right, cutting an ear off. He is, ca- he is taken, uh, captured rather, and uh, we see them desert. Have you felt that in your own heart? Is there moments in your life where you thought, I'm not 100% sure? Maybe there's a loved one in your life where, where maybe this is what's going on and you're not so sure that they can come back. Well, it looks like here that Jesus himself appeared to those who deserted him. Maybe we can be encouraged to pray, Lord, reveal yourself to those who walked away. God is willing. Paul says, uh, for us, he continues, right, that we see in verse 6, that he reveals himself. Jesus comes to the common people, right? I don't think this is an insult, but this is probably where most of us fall, right, in this category. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Here's the group of believers. Uh, it doesn't say much more than that, right? We don't think they denied Jesus. Uh, we don't think they're necessarily distinguished followers. They're not listed out for us. But we see the reality that it, that it teaches us, at least for I see this, is that you don't have to be some exceptional Christian or an exceptional person to know Jesus. I don't know if you've ever felt like, man, I, I can't compare to some of these people. Right? I think of those moments where you go through a hardship in life and you think, well, when I get to heaven, do I have really anything to, com- to, to complain about in front of Paul? It's like having a conversation. Oh, you know, look, this is, this is what I went through over here. Then Paul walks, into, walks up and you're like, okay, I'm going to be quiet now. We just don't feel like we were that. But what, is, what does God do? What does that tell us about his creation, his love? What does that tell us about those who feel they're insignificant and yet the grace and the resurrected Jesus appears to them, the Savior who's overcome the world? God is full of grace. And you can see this in line, right? Maybe some of the the Corinthians reading this and Paul has already told them in chapter 1, verse 26 through 29, for consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. We don't have to be an exceptional. We don't have to be perfect. Right? The, the standard of redemption is humble ourselves, repent, and believe. It doesn't matter our name. Paul goes on. He says, look, there's, there's the unbeliever. He appeared to James. James 
during Jesus' walk before Calvary, did not believe his half-brother, right, who probably saw his parents favor him a little bit. It's probably some, right, it's probably a chip on his shoulder there. Ooh, let's all do what Jesus wants to do, right? <laughs> There's probably moments of that where he questioned it. If you have a sibling, you could relate to that, right? He's a sinner, doesn't see, doesn't understand, but he comes to believe. When Jesus appears, we see James not just believe, become a leader in the church. Do you know unbelievers today that need Jesus? Does this not encourage us to, one, speak of Christ and pray for them? And then he says to all of the apostles, right? Those who God has given to the church who would write Right, the apostles' doctrine by the power of the Holy Spirit who would first take that commission and go forward. Those Jesus appeared to them. You and I are here today believing on the Lord Jesus Christ because those men full of the Spirit took these truths and went forward. It tells us, right, the commissioning. Grab this truth. Be like Paul. Stand at the crossroads and point to Jesus despite the suffering. And then Paul comes to this moment where he looks upon himself. No doubt, unfolding this gospel presentation, Jesus really died. He was really buried. And on the third day, he really rose according to the scriptures. And Paul must be, as he's writing that down, going, and I'm part of the redeemed. Paul says, of, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. I mean, think of Paul's life. It's bad enough Peter was a denier. Paul was a terrorist. He was a racist. He did not believe Jesus. Not only did he not believe Jesus, he persecuted Jesus. And then he followers of Jesus. He went the extra mile. He was an overachiever, right? So I'm going to get letters to extinguish any of these people who are a part of the way. But God allowed him to see the stoning of Stephen. He was there. He was in his own volition agreeing to this. This is a good thing, but the Lord allowed him by his sovereignty to see this moment because in that moment, Paul has to realize there is something this man has that I don't have a clue about. Following that moment, we see him on the road to Damascus where Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I would imagine that takes him right back to this moment of the stoning of Stephen. Yeah, I'm giving a full, uh, uh, please continue, right? Full endorsement of this moment. And yet he is persecuting Jesus. The grace of our Lord and Savior comes to those, right, who, star, who stand far away from salvation. Do you know someone in your life who just, you think there's no hope? Do you know someone in your life who has uh, terrorist ideas about the church? Well, this moment, Paul's testimony should encourage us, pray. Be that one who stands at the crossroads when that person comes and you keep pointing to Jesus. Point to Jesus. Yep, you might get called a few names. 
There might be accusations, a whole bunch of mess. Paul is illustrating it for us, but he's standing at the crossroads, one who is spiritually alive and is saying, avoid that road. That road goes to hell. You want this road, it goes to heaven. So we see the willingness, right? Paul's point here is the willingness of God to save. His second point, verses 9 through 10, we see that the gospel begins to produce something in us. There's a change. Paul says these words, For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. There's our word, right? Did you bleed in vain? No, the grace towards me did not prove vain. But I labored, labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. We know why Christ came to die. We have a sin problem. The gospel assumes this, and Paul says, I am the chief of these. He's the chief of this. He will tell that young pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. This was Paul. Rather Saul at this moment, right? But now Paul has been transformed. The gospel produces transformation in us. Paul is writing to this church. Paul is enduring those, right, who are persecuting him, but he, he sees the parallel. I also persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. That's who I once was. Paul has some understanding of what the gospel can do, and it can produce transformation. He attacked Christ. He attacked his followers. And yet God is using him to write the majority of our New Testament. But I think Paul is saying this not simply for his own testimony because you and I are identified here as well. Jesus said the words in Matthew 12, 30, he who is not with me is against me and he who does not gather with me scatters. See, before we came to know Jesus Christ, we were not passive. We were actively against Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying. We may have interpreted that as something as I don't want to go to church, I don't want anything to do with him or something to that end. But Jesus is saying, in reality, you are standing against me. This is us. This is our rebellion. This is what our heart does. This is the wickedness it wants. It desires hell. As Paul Washer said one time, if we were to go to hell and open the door and say, all those who want to come out and come to heaven, please come. And he said they would be upset that we actually opened the door because what? They long and they hate Christ. That's what sin does. This is why it takes a radical act of God to send a sinless Savior. Paul has said in Colossians 1.21, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in your mind, he's writing to believers, engaged in evil deeds. We may not define them like that. It's exactly how Paul is writing it, how the Bible explains it, how the, the damages of sin. Ephesians 2.5, even when we were dead 
and our transgressions. Jesus goes so far to say in John 3.18 that he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You realize this was you. This is what the gospel has changed in you. We once stood against, we once shaked our fist and shaked our head at the cross. Now in humility, we, we bow. See, that's what we see happening in Paul's life. What does he come to conclude? I, I am not worthy. See, when we realize just how, how evil our hearts were and the fact that we've come to Calvary and Jesus has appeared to us, right? The, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and he's called your name and he says, I will redeem you. I will spend blood. I will purchase you. It brings us to what? There's a transformation and that transformation involves, Lord, I'm unworthy. The moment of Peter on that boat before he realizes who Jesus is and Jesus says, cast the net and he responds, we've been fishing all night. I'm the fisherman here. You're just the teacher, but okay, we'll cast the net. He casts the net and so much fish comes out. The boat is sinking. And what does Peter do? He kneels down in the midst of fish and says, I'm unworthy. Get away from me. Paul, the chief of sinners, right? I don't belong here. I'm unworthy. John on the island of Patmos, I'm unworthy, falling as though dead. Isaiah, right, standing in the throne room, I'm undone. This was us. Christ called your name and brought you to Calvary. Or as the question might come, did we believe in vain? Paul says the grace of God given to him towards him did not prove vain. Paul is standing at the crossroads and pointing to Jesus. Not any Jesus, a specific Jesus. He'll say in Galatians 1.15, but when God would set me apart, even from my mother's womb, call me through his grace, was pleased. Paul identified himself as the chief of sinners, a persecutor of the church of God, standing against Christ, and yet we see him coming to Calvary. Saul, Saul, why have you persecuted me? I believe for us today, this is, this is the realization that this is us. This is our heart of rebellion. This is us shaking our fists of God. This is our testimony as well. We might not have done these things, but this is us, and God can take a person like this and do great things. The gospel brings about change. The question for us today is, have you believed in vain? Has God's grace to you been something of, well, it's just a good thing. I have it. I'll tuck it away on a rainy day. I'll pull it out. Or at the end of my life, I might claim a prayer once or something to that effect. Or has it changed you? Have you been humbled? You come to the place and say, Lord, I'm unworthy. I do not know why you call my name. In one of Jonathan Edwards' sermon, he says this. He says, The redeemed are dependent of God for all 
all that we have, wisdom, the pardon of sin, deliverance, acceptance in God's favor, grace, holiness, true comfort and happiness, eternal life and glory, we have from God by a mediator. And this mediator is God. God not only gives us the mediator and accepts his mediation, and of his power and grace bestows the things purchased by the mediator, but he is the mediator. Our blessings are what we have by purchase, and the purchase is made of God. The blessings are purchased of him, and not only so, but God is the purchaser. Yes, God is both the purchaser and the price for Christ, who is God, purchased these blessings by offering himself as the price for our salvation. God the Father accepts the sacrifice of God the Son. If this doesn't humble us, maybe we've believed in vain. See, the gospel from there unfolds. I'm just going to continue here in this last point. I see the gospel is demonstrated. It is, it is seen. Again, verse 10, and then I'll go on to 11. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. That's great. We preached and you believed. Paul, coming back to grace, I am what I am, right? You today, you are what you are by the grace of Jesus Christ. His grace is not a cheap grace. It costs them dearly. You should never treat it as poor or just another accessory of some sort. But it is amazing. And Paul is simply saying, I am an undeserved apostle. I have no right to be here, but God's grace towards me, and to place our lives in here, right? God's grace towards you is a grace that is with him. It is a grace that is with you. So what does that do in us? Well, for Paul, it changed him. And for us, it should as well if the gospel has taken root in our lives. And so the gospel must, if it's taken root, it's doing something unless you believed in vain. Those are the two options. Either it is affecting you in a positive way to grow in your holiness and your sanctification and your proclamation, right? It's changing the way you love your spouse or your children or you, how you act in your workplace, or maybe if that, none of that is happening, then maybe you've believed in vain. And, and Paul takes us right back to verse 2. And he takes us, in essence, forward also to verse 14. Christ has not been raised in our preaching, right? Our standing at the crossroads is vain. Our pointing to Jesus is vain, and your faith is vain. And I think here's the, the danger. We have those who have come to profess Jesus Christ in the Corinthian church, and they're beginning to accept right, worldly ideas regarding the resurrection. That's a spiritual thing. He really didn't die. It's just kind of a metaphor or uh, denying it outright. 
And Paul is saying, you're in danger. You're in danger. We don't get to point and choose. We accept Christ, according to the scriptures, died. He was buried. And on the third day, he rose, according to the scriptures. That is our confession. We must believe that. To God, with us, right? As Paul is proclaiming to the Corinthians, do not turn your back and doubt or question, but trust, right? Pray, seek him even more. Dive harder into his word and seek him there. He's saying the same things to us, right? He's called your name. He's spilt blood for you. Does this not affect you? Or are you turning your back and questioning and doubting? If you have doubts, then dig harder. This is why we are not meant to walk alone. Courage one another. We sharpen one another. And the gospel ultimately will recruit you. We are to be ministers, the hands and feet of Christ. We see it throughout Scripture, and here we, it's no different. Paul says, I, I work harder than all of them. This gospel, this grace in me is, is changing, right? Is changing him. I don't know what happened there. Operator error. <clears throat> it's changing him, right? But it drives him. It drives him for who he is. He, he's not saying he's better than the other apostles. He's simply saying, man, for the, for the ground of where I've come and what I've done, I'm working harder. I want to go. I want to be. I want to come into the kingdom at the end of my life and hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. He's going to wear it out out here, right? That's why he doesn't lose sight or lose heart when he's standing at the crossroads and he's preaching and he's pointing to Jesus and the response is simply uh, ridicule. And again, going back to 2 Corinthians, right? We'll see the list of all the things he will endure. And yet, what, why does he endure that? Because there is a theology. There is an understanding of who God is growing in Paul and this understanding of grace that propels him. He has reflected upon his life and what he was. He has come to Calvary and he's seen what Jesus has done. And he says, I am going to press on and work harder, but it's not me. It's the grace of God in me. It's the power of God in me. And Paul is reflecting on what grace looks like in the life of a believer. It changes you. Because you realize you don't earn it. You don't deserve it. God doesn't owe you. He doesn't owe me. Because of his own character, his own attribute. He so loves the world. And in that, in that attribute, in his activity in that attribute, Christ has come to us. What an amazing God. Paul, in this context, is dealing with the resurrection, right? He's pressing on. He's pushing the whole gospel. He's pointing to Jesus and saying, don't, don't turn away. And he reminds them whether it was me, any other apostle. And maybe in this letter, he's, maybe he has Apollos in his mind or, or Timothy or somebody else. But anyone who has come, he says, so we preach. Not our made-up doctrine, not our deluded doctrine with the world, not our compromise with the culture. We preach this gospel. And he reminds the Corinthians, this is the gospel you believed. Don't deviate. It is the gospel that saves 
sinners. It is the gospel that has redeemed a man named Saul, made him Paul. It is the gospel that saved these Corinthians, those who have come to believe. It is the gospel that saves us. What saddens my heart, brothers and sisters, is that there are many who profess Christ, who think they they know Jesus, and maybe they're standing metaphorically at a crossroads, but they're not pointing the right way. We know false teachers, the dangers of false teachers. Paul has told us in 2 Corinthians, they mask around, as Satan masks around as an angel of light, they do the same thing. It sounds good, it looks good, but they're not pointing to Jesus. They're pointing to hell. As we begin to realize that, we begin to see in Paul's understanding of God, in Paul's uh, testimony, what God is doing in him, we begin to see, okay, I get it, Paul. This is why you stand there. You'll take the beatings. You'll take the accusations. You'll suffer for the name of Jesus. Why? Because souls like us will come to know Jesus. The gospel reveals, it reveals God's willingness. The list of how Jesus manifested himself, it reveals his willingness. We just need to be those who stand at the crossroads and point. Produces something in us. Our lives are never the same when we come to Calvary. Produces humility in us. It's demonstrated. Why? Because we can't hide it. We too feel that weight. We too can say those words, I'm not worthy. There must be some mistake. But this must be our our, our conviction. And it is good news. It's God's news. That God still saves sinners. It's God's provision for salvation. And it has significance for today. We don't have to add to it. We don't have to have a, a carnival or blow up the pastor in a car, right? <laughs> we just need to preach the gospel. What the world needs desperately, more than anything, is to see people who actually believe it. Those who are willing to stand at the crossroads. Call me any name you like. Beat this body down. That's the direction to Jesus. Don't go that way. Friend, don't go that way. That's Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth, the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is like no other, for there is no other. You so loved us. You sent Jesus into this world. And we see just the the working of the gospel in Paul's life, how he himself is an illustration, and yet he points to all those that Jesus appeared to as as a teaching illustration for those who are doubting, those who are deserting, those who are, who are unbelieving, that we would be encouraged to continue to preach the gospel. 
I pray, Lord, you would forgive us for, for questioning or doubting. And, and in our unbelief, Lord, help us. Help us to believe that we would be those who are set apart, who have sanctified the Lord Jesus Christ, who have that answer of, that, of the reason of the hope that's in us, that we would meet every, every accusation with kindness and patience, full of love, because that's what we see in our Savior who was dying on the cross and praying for us. Lord, we're going to have to fight the flesh, so we need your Spirit. We ask that you would empower us. We know, Lord, the answer to the problem in this world is your children making this stand. The Lord, prepare us for that. In the different situations in which you place us, give us the grace, the mercy, Lord, to make that stand. Give us the ability, the, the, the right words, the, the boldness, the whatever is necessary that we would simply point to Jesus. Because we believe your gospel. We believe it changes lives. We believe you're willing Believe through prayer, Lord, you can soften and change any heart. We believe as we teach and preach and point to Christ, it is the answer. So, Lord, build your church. Edify your church, the saints here today. Lord, you've placed them uniquely in, in different situations to be a light that shines for you. Then by your spirit and, and by the boldness of your spirit, my bring, let us be a light that is, that is unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is your power and change every soul that comes and repents and believes. Lead us that way. We thank you for your grace, God. We don't deserve it. It humbles us. We are unworthy, just like Paul. But Lord, you are good, and you restore, and you redeem, and you make us usable for the kingdom, to which we respond and say, Lord, thank you. Thank you. We pray all this in the wonderful and awesome name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.